Hey there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what are we talking about today? We're going to be talking about the Russo-Ukrainian War. Uh, looking like it's about to catch its second wind with potentially even more savagery than we've seen before in this conflict. All that and more coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid fire news. So, we have constitutional reforms of the nation's electricity, or I should say the national electricity, which have been halted in Mexico. Now, the president, uh, Lopez Obrador, has expressed his uh, upsetness at this, because he was one of the main advocates for these constitutional reforms, uh, but the Congress, or the Parliament, they have a Parliament, so Parliament has stopped him and he is most definitely upset about this, and we'll see what happens in Mexico over this. Uh, definitely something to look out for. They kind of live on my border. So, there's Mexico for you. Meanwhile, on the other side of the world, we have Ukraine now fearing renewed Russian offensives in the Donbass. They have even resumed their civilian evacuations already, and we'll be talking more about Ukraine later on in the episode, and in fact, I'm pretty sure that's going to be the bulk of the episode, because uh, suddenly, after weeks of inaction, and almost nothing, we have a lot more to talk about, which means we'll have even more to talk about when things heat up in the coming days and weeks, so... But uh, yes, Ukraine is fearing that the Russians are going to resume their offensive, and they've resumed their civilian evacuations, uh, which they stopped for a little while, but now they're picking back up. So that should probably tell you everything you need to know about where they think this is going to go, and quite frankly should tell you everything you need to know about whether or not they're going to win. But um, so there's that. Well, again, we'll talk more about Ukraine later. Egypt has sentenced Deputy General of the Muslim Brotherhood, Mahmoud Ezat, to life in prison. Uh, he's a major leader of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood is an organization uh, generally within the uh, Islamic world who really don't like the West. Namely, it's kind of like a react... Uh, how do I put it? I don't know if like a a Muslim equivalent of the Reformation, uh, as much as sort of a anti-imperialist backlash towards the way the West treated the Ottomans back in the day. Cause going way back, is it the Ottomans? Oh my goodness! I'm thinking. Um, uh, maybe I had just had my history all messed up. I can I just went through a damn audio book on the Ottoman Empire. And learned that there was an, a young Ottoman group in that came before the Young Turks, so maybe, maybe I just had my Muslim groups nice and all mixed up. So you know, just bring you the most accurate information on the planet here. But uh, yeah, the, anyway, 
Anyway, the de- uh, Mahmoud Azat has been sentenced to life in prison, and that's Egypt for you. So, uh, if there was ever a way to show you that Egypt was a little different than those other ones, uh, this is it. Alright, after a brief, definitely not uh, Google search, I was right. They were a backlash movement. I thought they were more recent for some reason. And doubting myself, look at me. I had it right the first time. It's like those tests when you take them, you do them right, and then you go back and change the answer and it's wrong. Ah, but luckily that's what the power of minor, low-budget editing is for. So, anyway, I've done all this over uh, this man being thrown in prison, uh, which probably has more significance than I'm giving it, giving to it, um, given the history of Egypt and the Muslim Brotherhood going all the way back to 1928. 1928. It's a major political force that's been in Egypt for almost a hundred years now. So, for the deputy general of this guy. This organization to be thrown in jail, life in prison, in fact. It's a pretty big thing. Is this a part of some larger crackdown on the Muslim Brotherhood? Or is this just me uh, milking the rapid fire news segment? Who knows? I've just gotten stuck on this topic now since I've uh, almost humiliated myself on it. But <laughs> anyway, the speaking of Muslims, the United Arabist Party has withdrawn from the Israeli governing coalition. And this is big because due to the slim majority of the government coalition in Israel, that small party leaving has robbed the government of their of their majority that they had in parliament. We did talk about the slim majority that Israel's government got way back when they had to form the coalition in the first place. And we were talking about how big of a deal it was that they would, in order to form a coalition, they were going to need one of the Arab parties to join in. And they were able to get that successfully. But now, they've pulled out. So will they be able to convince someone else to join the coalition? Is the big question now in Israel. And this is, as a side note, probably a direct result of the clashes that have been happening between Israel and Palestine lately. And it's sort of been heating up uh, a lot, especially in the lead-up to Easter. I have it in my notes. There it is. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of civil unrest that's been primarily religion on religion in Israel over certain holy sites in the country. I know there was a like a small temple shrine uh, not a shrine, like a, a temple steps. There were steps that were sacred to both religions. But what had happened over the last week was the Muslims and the Jews were both trying to assert their claim to those steps, and neither wanted to back down or allow the other to, you know, have access to this holy site which is, again, holy for both religions. So what ended up happening was they were fighting over the weekend over this this site. Now, for me personally, I may be a Christian, but 
I'm not fighting over these steps. I'm going to stay my ass at home and eat my Easter dinner. But for these devout, these actually, yeah, that, that's the word. I was trying to find something else. But for these devout people, these are much more important. And now you have the Jews and the Muslims fighting over what on the outside would appear to be something very, very small, but to them it's pretty, pretty big. And just goes back to my general understanding of the situation in between Israel and Palestine. You have two people with two competing claims to the same land. And one of them is just gonna have to win. It that that's what I my that's what my conclusion is from this that's my takeaway is that one of them is just gonna have to win because if there's parity between the two they're just not gonna get along if one of them is able to dominate the other well then the other is gonna resist so one of them has to be able to dominate the other to such a degree that resistance is futile but neither of them are able to do that Israel is not able to do that to the Palestinians. Palestine, in time, when they become the demographic majority in this geographic area, they're not going to be able to do that to the Israelis either. Um, but so you're gonna you're just gonna have conflict for the indefinite future between these two, unless one of them just goes genocide mode, in which case um that. If the Israelis end up doing it, that, 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 that's just a terrible look. If the Palestinians do it, well, uh, that's also a terrible look. Because, ah, uh, uh, good old ethnic violence, well, ethnic and religious violence in this case. When genocide the Jews, well, guess what? The Palestinians are now just like the Nazis. And if the Jews are the ones who commit the genocide, well, guess what? Now, there goes all the sympathy from you having it done to you during World War II. It's like, ah, oh, it's strange seeing and, you know, commenting on things which, if we were to go back to, say, what, 1300, 1400, somewhere around there, or even before, people wouldn't bat an eye about ethnic cleansing and that, that, that's what it is that's what we're looking at here and that's what I'm really referring to when I say one of them's probably going to have to win over the other that, that, that's what we're talking and it's strange to make even make comments like that in this day and age where ethnic cleansing is viewed around the world as a terrible thing to do but going back to earlier points in human history it was a normal thing to do and that's how you got the consolidation of many ethnic groups in the first place. So are we seeing something like that play out in Israel right now? Israel and Palestine? Where we're going to get either some new ethnic group to form out of this, or one of these is just going to assert their ethnicity over the other and just stamp out the other, and that's how the conflict ends? Is that what we're looking at? Or will peace find a way to prevail? It's interesting, and for many people, probably horrifying. But definitely, definitely interesting. Well, 
always interesting with that Israel in the Middle East in general, I should say. I I still can't get over the fact that I used to despise having to talk about the Middle East, and now it's one of my favorite regions to look at, and so much is happening. And it's not all negative. Well, in this case, it's it's super-duper negative. Uh, But in many other cases, it's more a slightly positive outlook, depending on the country. So, the Middle East is getting very interesting. And Israel is getting very dark. Very, very dark and very, very fast. But uh, going back up to the top of my notes here, we have Nigeria, who has conducted more airstrikes along their border with Niger. And they claim to have killed about 70 Islamist fighters in this border region. There have also been claims that local militias in Nigeria have been cooperating and working with the Islamist militants. So, it appears that we can now say definitively that Nigeria is officially a part of the Second Great African War. Unofficially, but we're just going to say officially, because if you're bombing people who are fighting in this larger conflict, you're no longer a neutral party, you're at war, and it doesn't matter if you declare it or not, you're at war now. So, Nigeria has officially joined the Second Great African War. Now, will they be on the winning side, or will they uh, lose? Who knows? The, the the Islamists seem to have a lot of resilience in them, and a lot of willingness to fight for extended periods of time. But that doesn't guarantee that they're going to win. Uh, but it definitely guarantees that they'll wear some of their enemies out. Looks like France is partially worn out, not quite all the way. They've pulled troops out of... Um, what was it? Pulled troops out of Mauritania. No, 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 no. It was Mali. They pulled troops out of Mali, and that's what I was looking for. So they pulled troops out of Mali, but not. They haven't withdrawn from the war as a whole. So, and France has been in this for well over a decade. So, this is definitely a protracted conflict that the Nigerians have now found themselves in. Although, to be fair to them, this wasn't exactly a choice on their part. They wanted nothing to do with this, and now they're forced to respond in their border regions. And now they're bombing people in the tens. And If we are to believe their numbers, if their numbers are accurate, almost a hundred people died in that one bombing. Like, this one raid, almost a hundred people died. Now, in the context of, say, World War II... That doesn't seem like much. In the context of World War One, that doesn't seem like much either. Heck, in the context of the first Great African War that happened in the Congo, it still doesn't seem like much. But when you look at all these deaths, and again, this is why I started calling this the Second Great African War, when you see 10, 15, 20, back to 15, 17, 18, 25, and you, week after week after week, it's like, well, hold on now. All that adds up, and these are a lot of people dying. This is a lot of people dying every week. And shoot, I don't even report on it every week. But when I do, and it's not like it just goes away when I don't report on it. But when I do, every time, we're talking 10, 15, 20, 25, 
back down to 20, 25 again, 24, 23. It's like all that adds up. And in this single bombing raid that they've done, this single airstrike, 70 people, again, if we're to trust their numbers on this, 70 people. Now, maybe maybe it's only half as much, all right? Nigeria is a very densely packed country. They have well over 100 million people living in a relatively small area. I mean, it's not exactly as big as, say, Pakistan or America, for that damn matter. They have almost as many people as Russia living in this relatively small geographic area. I'd say they're roughly the size of... Uh, uh, roughly the size of, we'll say, Poland and Germany combined, looking at my little globe. And we'll... So that... that uh, actually, ironically enough, about the same population, too. But... You have all these people living in this small area, so it, you can believe, could, just based off the population density, that 70 people could have been taken out in a single raid. But let's just say it's only half as much. 35 people? In one go. 35 people. And this is just one attack. Remember, there's constant raids and skirmishes in this area, which probably go underreported, because we're not living in Nigeria, and, well, quite frankly, not many other people even bother to speak about what's happening in Nigeria right now. So, you're talking hundreds every week. Hundreds every week. And that adds up to thousands. And then tens of thousands. And the conflict has been going on for how many years now? And this is just Nigeria, too. You, know, you gotta think, Chad is fighting the war. Cameroon, not Cameroon, there to the south. You have Mali fighting the war. You have Niger fighting the war. You have parts of uh, Benin, Upper Volta. Uh, well, not up, Upper Volta. Yeah, goodness. I've been playing a game where that's what the nation's called. They're called Burkina Faso now. You have parts of Burkina Faso and Togo. All these places fighting on their frontiers for... Burkina Faso and Togo and Benin, but for them it's the frontier. For them in Nigeria it's the frontier. For Niger, for Mali, for Chad, you're talking the heartland is what they're fighting. In the desert of the 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 big big Sahara is where mostly is Muslim Islamists. Uh, well, I guess that's redundant. These. <laughs> Islamist militants are making their base of operations, and they cross, and they fight. And you have all this conflict happening across a really, really big geographic area. When you look at Africa, and then you look at all these countries involved, that's a huge area. That is uh, probably, probably about half the length of the United States. If you were to go from, say, like, Kansas... To Virginia, you're looking at at least that bit of distance that you're talking about for this conflict zone. It's huge. It's absolutely huge. And so I call it the Second Great African War. Just, it, I, I'm constantly shocked by the things that happen around the world that fly or under the radar and 
even more shocked at my ability to pick them up when they do. But this this is pretty big. And Nigeria is not even the only country doing airstrikes. We have Israel doing airstrikes on Syria. But what else is new there? You have... Uh, I, I guess I should... Before I move on, I'll throw in that I believe Israel's on a collision course with Iran. And then we'll move on, because I've talked about that for like a million episodes now. So you have Pakistan also conducting air raids. They're doing it in eastern Afghanistan. Uh... Reportedly, and this was an, uh, another big one that we're talking about when we're talking about the death figures for these sorts of raids, You're, we're talking reportedly 47 people. Now, this is, these uh, claims, yes, these claims for 47 people dying have come predominantly from the Afghan side. The Pakistani side hasn't so much given much in the way of their estimates as much as they've been sort of quiet on it, but from the Afghanistan side of things, they're reporting, they're claiming 47 people. And again, that's a really big number in the context of the modern day. That's a lot of people to just go, be snuffed out like that in a single raid, a single raid. 70 people in Niger, 47 people in East Afghanistan. These These are some big numbers. Some big numbers. I mean, these are at least on par with the numbers you see coming out of certain parts of Ukraine, uh, whether the intensity isn't super duper high, like the lower intensity parts of Ukraine. These are numbers right up there with the fighting in Ukraine. So, in the context of modern warfare, these are some average to high casualty figures that we're looking at. And it's strange uh, comparing it to previous moments in history where you'd be talking about hundreds or even thousands as, you know, oh my goodness. But now we're talking 40, 70, oh my goodness. But I guess that's a good thing more than a bad thing. But uh, yeah, the, the tensions between Afghanistan and Pakistan have been climbing. They have been trying to work together and resolve their issues. But it seems like there's just constant raids between the borders i mean and it's not at, uh i was about to say afghanistan it's not just pakistan all of a sudden attacking afghanistan there's been many raids from militant groups on the afghan side who cross over into pakistan and which is and before i, I remember i made a small segment talking about how every time there's a raid between afghanistan and pakistan it's the pakistanis who have k who have losses and deaths and the Afghans walk away untouched. Maybe that's just because they hit the numbers better. But now you have Pakistan with an air raid. If you, if there was ever a way to up the ante, uh, who know? Maybe the Islamic Emirate will send a, a chopper or two their way. Those brand new, brand new American helicopters they got, huh? It's from the Biden administration as a, the, the the farewell present. Ah, ah, because it was. You know, too expensive to bring them back to the States. Ah, goodness. Ugh. This administration, this guy. <laughs> but, but, uh, <clears throat> uh, oh, goodness. Speaking of the Biden administration, oh, goodness. 
they are now set to host ASEAN leaders from May 12th to 13th. This is to commemorate, I'm pretty sure it was the 45th year of relations with this organization. And they'll probably find a way to inject the Russia-Ukraine conflict into the conversation. Probably bring something about China into the conversation. And then ASEAN will shake their heads, they'll nod, and then they'll do jack squat about both of those countries because they have no interest in doing any of that. Why would they? And that seems so strange to me. Yeah, again, I remember, I'm pretty sure I talked about it on the podcast, but uh, when I was doing my little rant about the l- unbelievable amounts of leverage that Ukraine has, or maybe it was before that, but I was talking about how Ukraine, the leader there, Zelensky, was asking South Korea for more weapons. And it's just like, why would South Korea give you weapons? Like, like, just, just bear with me and, you know, think about that for a moment. Let that sit with you for a little while. A little while. What reason would South Korea have to give weapons to Ukraine? Why, why would they do that? Why, why would they do that? They, they, first of all, they have North Korea on their board. Alright? Second of all, they don't like Japan. Third of all, Russia's in their neighborhood too, just by way of Russia's borders. And third of all, they have China. They have, why would South Korea ever sacrifice their own weapons that they're going to need to defend themselves in such a hostile environment, if there ever was one? Why would they ever give you weapons for a war that they have nothing to do with? So strange. So very, very strange. Uh, but we're probably going to see something even stranger come out of this uh, summit, as they're calling it, between the Biden administration and ASEAN. And we'll see how that goes, although I imagine I'll be uh, somehow more disappointed than I have been before. Russia, speaking of selling weapons, has sold more S-400s to India. This is the second sale that they've done to India. And if there was ever a silent way of telling you which side India was on, this is probably it. So that's about, what, 3 billion people on Russia's side now? Definitively? Definitively. Just India and China combined, plus Russia, plus Pakistan. Although we'll see with Pakistan that, you know, Imran Khan was ousted. So we'll see if the guy who replaces him still stands with Russia. That'll be interesting to look at. And interesting to look at how his neighbors respond to that. Because, uh... If there was ever an excuse for India to try something, if there was ever an excuse for Afghanistan to try something, maybe China looks the other way. No, China's not going to look the other way. They want their Belt and Road to stick. So, they'll probably just put up with it for now. It's not like it's the end of the world for them. But it is definitely a change-up, and it could slow down the Belt and Road, though could slow down. We'll see if it does. But uh, back up to Europe, Belarus has banned trucks registered in the EU from entering their country. Uh, so this is their sort of retaliation for the 
sanctions that have been placed on Belarus uh, because Belarus has openly worked with Russia and aided and abetted the Russians in the invasion of Ukraine. So Belarus is probably bending this, one, as a counter to that, and two, as a counter to NATO trying to send weapons by truck and through Belarusian territory to get to Ukraine. Um, just in case they try, because, you know, NATO seems to be very, very desperate to do that, although, in my opinion, I'm pretty sure all that's just going to amount to a, a very large donation to the Russian arms depot. A very large donation to the <laughs> Russian weapons stockpile. Now, that's what I think is going to come of all these billions of dollars in aid and weapons that's going to Ukraine. They're just going to end up in the Russian stockpile. Because I'm pretty sure Russia's going to win this. The Ukrainians seem to think the same, uh, judging by their actions. But uh, we'll talk about Ukraine in just a minute. Uh, before we do, uh, back to Belarus. They've also promised to deepen their integration with Russia. And this is another means of fighting back against the sanctions. So, in the face of sanctions... The West has pushed Belarus to Russia and pushed Russia to China. So they pushed Belarus to Russia and Russia to China. So in essence, they have manually reconfigured the Soviet Union themselves. And now you even have talk of Finland and Sweden trying to join NATO with Finland of all countries being the farthest along in that sort of progress which would mean a country that has a border with Russia joining NATO and of course the folks over in NATO are ecstatic about this and you have many people who still think Russia's losing uh, ecstatic about this because Finland is their history with the Soviet Union and the the Winter War, oddly enough, no one remembers the Continuation War. Uh, shoot, I, I'll be honest, I didn't know that was a thing until last year. But uh, it, the Continuation War happened in the middle of the German invasion of Russia, when the, the Finns fought a war against Russia alongside the Axis. And then the Soviets won. I mean, people don't remember that. But uh, I have a feeling that should modern-day Finland try their luck, they'll end up like the Finland of 1945 rather than the Finland of 1940. That's my, now, that's just my personal opinion. All right, I, I won't make too many judgments about that. The terrain and whatnot up there is very different from Ukraine, so because rough terrain is always much more tricky to you know, deal with than... This, flat, wide open of, say, Ukraine. But when it comes to Ukraine, I will make definitive predictions, and I say they're going to lose, and they're going to lose badly. But, uh, yeah, we have talk of Sweden and Finland joining, but if they do join, and there does end up being some sort of larger conflict with NATO, I still don't see it ending well for them. I, I really don't. I really don't, and I'll elaborate more on that in just a minute. Alright, and we're back. So, why do I think Sweden and Finland joining NATO 
would be an objectively bad idea. Well, Sweden may have the benefit of the Baltic Sea between them and, well, Russia and Finland. Because if Finland falls, they'll still be the, the Baltic Sea between Sweden and in very much enlarged Russia. Finland doesn't have that advantage. Finland is on Russia's border, and Russia's very sensitive about countries on their border joining NATO. If you'll notice, Russia has not committed their entire army towards the invasion of Ukraine. They still have hundreds of thousands of troops just swimming around the countryside of Russia, with the vast majority of them being in the western half of Russia, the European part of Russia. Because that's where most of their hostile adversaries are. So they have plenty of troops to spare for combat operations against these new NATO members if they decided that that's what they wanted to be. And if not, they could always call up the reserves and just commit to the total war. And at that point, you'd have a, a larger mess on your hands. And at that point, then it would be appropriate to start expressing fears about nuclear war. Now, there are many expressing those fears now, when the conflict is very, 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 very limited. And I say that because the Russians have deliberately held back on the Ukrainians. They really have. Again, if you don't hold back, you're not going to leave the power on. You're not going to leave the gas running. You're not going to leave the water running. You're not going to... You're going to leave the internet running so that people can do TikToks on you <laughs> in Ukraine. You're not going to leave that running. You're going to take it out, and then you're going to cut the communications, because those are lines of communication. Why would you let your enemy communicate? You wouldn't. You'd cut it, and you'd move in, you'd do what you needed to do, and they would be scrambling to figure out what in tarnation was going on in their own country. That's what not holding back would look like. But Russia is holding back, so we do have TikToks in Ukraine, and we have the ghost of Kiev. <laughs> this is what we get, because Russia is holding back. This is why the casualty figures are so low. This is why cities uh, are not being bombed as a whole, but instead you have city blocks and certain buildings in cities being bombed. And you have house-to-house -house fighting. Where you have the special forces and strange, strange videos of these Russian troops just casually walking by Ukrainian civilians while they're being recorded. And they're just marching off into the rubble. And, and then you hear the shooting. Russia is, by what well, I would say, an objective analysis, but maybe I'm just biased. or I'll, I'll just say that I'm biased, but by my observation... Russia's holding back immensely. Especially when you see what they can do it to ISIS in Syria. They haven't, they haven't given the Ukrainians anywhere near that much treatment. They could. They're closer to their supply lines than they were in Syria. So they really could, but they haven't. If they end up at war with the rest of NATO... NATO's not going to get that level of leniency. Here's why. Russia invaded Ukraine with a specific goal in mind, which was to stop 
what they viewed as the persecution and in many cases, some cases, I almost said many, in some cases, genocide of ethnic Russians in Ukraine committed by Nazi elements in the Ukrainian government. That was the reason they went in. So, their goal, and this is also part of the reason they called it a special military operation, part of the goal is to wipe out the Ukrainian military and wipe out the Nazis in the Ukrainian government. And so far, they have stuck to those stated war aims. We'll see if they stick to them for the during the remainder of the war. But so far they have. That means they're not just going to run in and murder everybody <laughs> in cold blood and accuse them of all being Nazis. No, they've targeted, and they've made it clear that they are targeting the specific elements of the Ukrainian government. Now, that still amounts to regime change, all right, just to keep it a buck fifty with you. Because there's lots of criticisms of Biden for making similar comments about wanting to change the government of Russia, the, specifically that Putin can't remain in power. But Putin's committing a regime change operation in Ukraine as we speak, so all's fair in love and war. But that being said, that's the, that is the war aim of the Russians. And so far they've been consistent with what they say is their aim. That's for Ukraine and Ukraine only. And worst case scenario for the Ukrainians, they become a part of Russia. Alright. Russia's not going to do them that much harm. Because Russia views Ukrainians as Russians. That's how they view Ukrainians. They don't view Ukraine as a separate ethnicity. Or even a separate culture. They view it as, if anything, a subculture of Russian culture. So, they're not going to... They're not going to go balls to the wall to destroy Ukraine, especially if they don't have to. And even if they did have to, I still imagine they'd hold back. But that's the Ukraine treatment, and that will remain the Ukraine treatment. Ukraine is viewed as Russian. You know who isn't viewed as Russian? Finland, Sweden, Norway, Poland. They are not Russian. The Russians do not view them as Russian. They don't view them as kin, as having kinship with the Russians. You know who the Russians might still hold back on? The Baltics, Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia. But will they? Who knows? Uh, they have Russian mi minorities living in those countries. And in the case of one of them, I forget which one, I think it was Estonia, where the number of Russians living there is about... 50% of the population, but you have a very large Russian minorities living there. They'll hold back for the Baltics. Those are the only other countries I see in this region Russia holding back on, because Moldova is not a part of, you know, NATO. I, I would see them holding back on Moldova as well. But everyone else, they're not going to get the Ukraine treatment. They're going to get the fuck you treatment. <laughs> They're going to get the desert storm treatment, except it'll be winter. You'll see Russian tanks by the thousand just steamrolling troops across the countryside in Poland and Finland. 
you'll see the full force of the Russian Air Force brought to bear to hit strategic targets instead of troops as the Russians unleash Blitzkrieg on NATO. And quite frankly, NATO's not ready to handle that. NATO is not ready to handle that. Germany has no army. All right, Germany has no army. There are not enough troops in Finland to guard Helsinki from the onslaught they'd be forced to endure. And anything that would come by sea would be shot out the water by anti-ship missiles. You have Kaliningrad there, and there will undoubtedly be a very swift link-up made by Russian troops, predominantly Russian armor and paratroopers, to link up Belarus with Kaliningrad. And then from there, the Baltics are cut off. And Poland is not going to be able to punch through that thin strip of land by themselves. They're just not going to be able to do it. They, they just aren't. The Russian Air Force is going to be very, very strong. And it's going to take a while to round up the air forces of every other country in NATO and get them into position to do something about it. So from there, you have local air superiority on the part of the Russians. Just off the Russian Air Force. Then you have Russia's anti-air weaponry. Which they've, they haven't had to use very much in the conflict with Ukraine. Because they shat all over the Ukrainian Air Force on day one of the conflict. So if war breaks out between Russia and NATO, well... I can imagine that a whole lot of the Polish, Lithuanian, Latvian, Estonian, and Finnish air forces are going to be wiped out on day one. And then it's going to be a matter of, will Germany be able to bring the planes to bear? Will France and Britain be able to bring the planes to bear? Will the United States commit more aircraft than they already do? That's going to be the question. Now, we can get aircraft to Europe in a matter of hours. So that would be as temporary of a blow as you can take. But from there, you're talking about having to resist big Russian armor columns moving across the countryside, backed up by hundreds of thousands of men. Europe will not get the Ukraine treatment. Now, I do not believe Russia is omnipotent. I don't think they're going to be able to pick a fight with all of Europe and win. But... In those borderlands that were once theirs, they can probably pick that fight and win, and then sit on it until the war is over. They have superior defensive capability. They have the S-500. That's probably that, that can snipe out any plane we have. And they can mass-produce them easier than we can produce an F-35. You litter them across the Ukrainian, Belarusian, and uh, Baltic countrysides, it's a wrap. You're, just, you're not getting through that. And if you do, you have the Russian Air Force to deal with now. They don't have to go on the offensive from a, once they reach a certain point. All right? People obsess over Russia trying to put the Soviet Union back together. But if you do this, you get Finland and Sweden into NATO while you're trying to escalate and ramp up this conflict with Russia... Uh, between Russia and NATO. There we go. We're trying to ramp up this conflict between these two forces. 
and then you add these two countries in at that moment in time, not at any other moment, but at that specific moment in time, Finland is going to be shat upon. They will be the first casualty of the Russo-NATO war. Finland will be the first casualty, and the Baltics will be casual. They'll become casualties shortly after, if they don't end up being the first casualty. I say Finland, but it may end up being that Kaliningrad will be the bigger priority, which means the Baltics will die. Because once you have that link up, now you can supply the area with anti-ship missiles. Now you can bomb the Baltic Sea at will with missiles, making ships and naval convoys of troops or materiel, it's, it's too dangerous to send them through. There's just, the missiles are there. You can't get through the, the screen of missiles. If you try to send it by air, now you're talking big, slow-moving cargo planes coming up on the radars of S Russian S-500s. That, that's a terrible idea. And it's going to end in p lots of unnecessary deaths if that's the route you try to take. There's just not a f feasible way of resupplying the Baltics if this conflict were to break out and Russia gets the land connection to Kaliningrad. Only Sweden could potentially do this and they'd be shot if they tried. Finland would have to deal with the Russian army. They are not ready for that. They don't have the numbers. They are, are out of practice in their guerrilla warfare. All right. They could probably pick up the manuals again and inflict some good damage on the Russians. But would they win? Probably not. Probably not. Not. R Russia knows their way around modern warfare enough to deal with whatever Finland's going to throw at them. Will there be a long-term insurgency in Finland? Maybe. Now, there's a significantly greater chance that that happens in Finland than in Ukraine. But will that be enough? Probably not. Probably not. There's just there's not enough people in Finland for it to be enough. Alright. So you're talking... the Going far beyond the borders of the Soviet Union, you're going full-on Russian Empire. They they get Finland and probably even parts of Poland back. And then they sit on it until the West tires itself out. And in the process, they use the conflict to forcefully rewire their economy away from dependence on the West, like they're already doing, right before our very eyes. A war between NATO and Russia would result not in the rebirth of the Soviet Union. We wouldn't get Soviet Union 2.0. We'd get Russian Empire 2.0. And from that point onwards, nobody in Russia's ever, ever going to refer to Putin as a war criminal, even if he commits war crimes along the way. They will refer to him as Putin the Great, right up there with Peter and Catherine and Ivan. Peter the... Peter. Putin the Great. And that will be the, the greatest insult to people who view him as the next Hitler. I, I just do not see a larger war between NATO and Russia going the way that 
the people pushing hardest for this to happen, I don't see it going their way. I just really don't. And that's largely due to the underestimation, the surprising, constant underestimation of the Russian military. And again, it's so strange to see such a contradictory point of view where you see them, you see people talk about, oh, oh Russia, if we don't stop them in Ukraine, it's going to be it's going to be Romania, Poland, Germany, Sweden, Finland, and the Baltics. They'll fearmonger about that and then say that Russia's losing in Ukraine. Well, those two things can't be true at once. <laughs> if you're losing in Ukraine, there's no way you're going to be able to win against any other country in your neighborhood. Uh, uh, certainly not in Europe. Maybe you can get away with the Baltics. But I, I digress. I digress. But uh, it's a very strange uh, thing to deal with, the inconsistency of position that I observe constantly. But this strange underestimation of Russia will be the biggest downfall of the people advocating for this larger conflict with Russia. And now it's easy for me to see, because I don't underestimate them, but perhaps... That's, again, just due to my bias. I'll, I'll be honest with you all the way about my bias. I'm pretty damn sure the Russians have what they need to win that war. If nothing else, a unified command. NATO is not exactly unified in its command. We have a unified command structure, but every time we do a drill, it's it takes a long time to get everyone into position. It takes a long time to coordinate the message between 8 million different languages. And then the execution is generally, well, meh. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. But if the United States, for whatever reason, has its logistical capabilities impaired by Russia, well then, suddenly, the only country that can do anything on its own is Poland, because they're on the border, Romania, because they're on the border, Hungary, who's not going to go anyway, <laughs> and France. And that's it. Maybe Britain. But uh, So all of NATO gets reduced to like three countries if the logistical capabilities of one country is compromised. And that's the United States. And that's assuming the Russians don't bomb the roads. And then, then you'll see logistics problems. All, all those logistics that people were laughing at the Russians for. You'll see people fretting and lamenting with NATO. I really don't see this war. That, again, a lot of people, for whatever reason, are really desperate to get us into. I don't see it going their way. I really do not. Uh... But yes, that's why I, I don't advocate for war, all right? especially when it's thousands of miles away from me. Now, in the case of Europe, it's not thousands of miles away. It's like maybe a few hundred. But if you're France, the war is far enough away <laughs> to where you don't need to get involved. And depending on how these elections go in France, they just might not get involved. So it comes at an interesting time for France, and I guess this will be a referendum on the war as well, as as well as a referendum on, you know, Macron.
but we have more to, than my opinions to talk about on the Russo-Ukrainian War. We have more Ukrainian troops who have surrendered in Mariupol. I believe last time we brought up a thousand troops. And the episode before that, it was 250. So more and more troops are surrendering. I don't have a number for this time around. I'm pretty sure it's smaller than the 1,000, though. But uh, you have more surrenders in Mariupol, as it is now being widely believed that the siege is coming to a close, and the Russians are going to win that one. And again, master class in siege warfare. People who are paying attention can learn a whole lot from how Russians are conducting this, but will people learn? That's the thing. Just like with, say, the American Civil War or the Russo-Japanese War, where you had extensive usage of trench warfare and artillery, which would be the, you know, the forebearers of the First World War, people learned from those and then immediately forgot those in favor of other wars. Now, the Russo-Japanese War is interesting because it happened just, what, nine years before World War I? So the most recent conflict fought by a major European power was ignored. Like, you, you can understand ignoring the American Civil War when it comes to uh, lessons that could have been taken away before World War I. Because you had all the German wars of unification, the Italian wars of unification. Uh, those were not static conflicts. Those were fast-moving, fast-paced conflicts that only lasted for a year or two. Uh, usually a couple months. And the biggest one when, was when Germany fought France in the Franco-Prussian War. And even Germany fighting Austria. But Germany fighting France, that was all of Germany, uh, minus Austria, against France. So two great powers going at it, and it lasts for not even a year. So... But then there's the Russo-Japanese War, which is a static conflict. It was more recent than the Franco-Prussian War by decades. It, again, it happened just nine years before World War One. But people learned from the Franco-Prussian War instead of learning from the Russo-Japanese. So lessons can be learned from wars. But will they is the big question. And I, I keep bringing up siege warfare because we haven't seen major siege warfare operations in a while that didn't involve just bombing the shit out of the city. But here we do. Here we do. We have this. And you they're not just bombing the city into rubble. They're bombing city blocks to kill certain people. So you have this form of siege warfare that that can be learned from, but we'll see if it is. And that's that's the real kicker. That's the real thing to look out for, because the lesson can be there. But if no one bothers to learn it, well, you're just going to have a horrendous time in the future. When similar situations present themselves and you've deliberately slacked on learning the lessons that could have helped you in your new struggle. But I'll digress. So there's Mariupol coming closer to surrender as a whole. You have the warship Moskva, which was badly damaged and later sunk uh, just outside of the ports. It almost got there, but it, it couldn't quite make it. Ukraine claims that its missile attack is what did the job and did it in 
while Russia claims it was a fire that broke out on board from an explosion of the munitions on board. We'll eventually find out the truth behind this, but such is the fog of war. For now, we have new concerns that have popped up about this ship regarding potential nuclear missiles that may have been on board the Moskva when it sunk. Uh, so you have countries living in living on the Black Sea, like Romania, Bulgaria, and Turkey, now talking about uh, maybe we should look into that so that we don't have irradiated water. So there'll, there'll probably be some sort of recovery effort after the war, but for the time being, we're probably just going to have to sit on that and... Maybe there is or maybe there isn't nuclear warheads on board the ship, but only time will tell. Again, only time will tell. Uh, the Defense Ministry of Russia has warned, they've warned Ukraine of retaliatory strikes on central command centers in Kiev if Ukraine continues their attempts to hit Russian territory. But this is strange to me. And it's strange to me because... Um, how do I put this? Uh, they're at war. <laughs> they're at war. Shouldn't Russia have expected this? I certainly would have. You certainly would have. I mean, you're at war. Of course they're going to try to hit you on your territory. If you're fighting them on their territory like why wouldn't they my <laughs> i swear this war is a novelty this whole war is just a novelty uh you know uh, not down not to downplay the deaths that have occurred and the straight up loss of livelihood that has come from this but compared to what europe has demonstrated it's capable of in the past for a very, very long time, way back before World War One, even compared to what Europe has demonstrated it's capable of when it comes to war, this war is quite the novelty. And you know what? I guess the Ukrainian people are all the safer because of it. But it's just so strange reading and reporting about. Like it's strange enough when I read some of these things happening. And then when I say them out loud to you, it just, it's even stranger than it is when I wrote it. And <laughs> I just, goodness, dude, I, I'm going to move on. I'm going to move before I bewilder myself into silence. But um, anyway, m my opinion on this is that Russia should have known this would happen. I mean, you're using, you're using this as leverage uh, they should have known this was going to happen. Alright? And my opinion is that Russia did know this was going to happen. Because they're not retarded. They knew this was going to happen. Alright? They, they knew that this is a game that is bewildering to read out loud. But they knew this was going to happen. But now they're using it as leverage in the ongoing peace talks. Those talks are the reason I believe they haven't already demolished the Ukrainian government apparatus. Instead, they're making threats of damaging 
Ukraine's command centers. If Russia was not holding back, they would have demolished that on day five. The Ukrainian government would have been in in a heap of rubble on day seven. All right. But instead, they're using this threat as leverage in the talks. So should the peace talks fail, and it currently looks as though they will, uh, it looks a whole lot more like they will uh, as of me recording this, uh, but should the peace talks fail, we may see a resumption of the Russian offensive. Now, I say that the talks appear to be failing, number one, because Russia seems to be gearing up for a new offensive. Uh, we have a quote from Ahmad Hamada, who is a defector from the Syrian army, now turned military analyst in Turkey. He has said that Russia is preparing for a greater battle in Ukraine, and Syrian fighters are likely to take part, and this is according to this guy, who's a military analyst for Turkey now, who used to be a part of the Syrian army. So you have that, and you have uh, many, many other people starting to believe that Russia's gearing up for a, a renewed offensive. You have Ukraine, most notably, who believes Russia's gearing up for this. And we talked earlier about how they were restarting their civilian evacuations in amidst these fears of the Russian offensive. Now tell me this. If Russia's losing the war, why would they respond this way to the idea of a Russian offensive? If the, if the Russian offensive is stalled and ground to a halt by the brave efforts of the Ukrainians, why would they not be fleeing from their homes if the Ukrainian military has got this in the bag? Why, why, why are they still... I mean, I could understand why they're still asking for weapons, because, you know... They're not exactly going to outproduce the Russians anytime soon in weapons. So, I'll give them that one. But with all these weapons that they have, that have been getting, why would they... Oh, goodness. An alarm went off. But anyway, with all these weapons they're getting, and all these foreign volunteers they're getting, and all this money that they're getting, and... With all the hype about Russia being ground down in, in Ukraine, why would they now be fleeing? Why would they now be evacuating their city? Why would they now be doing this and gearing up for retreat? Why would they be doing that if they're winning? Now, the answer is simple to me. It's that they're not winning and that the Russians are probably going to take half the country this time, uh, assuming they stop there which they may or may not, depending on how Russia feels at that moment in time. And that, that's my take. That's my take. But that, that's number one. All right, They're, The first reason I think that the peace talks are failing. Russia's gearing up for another offensive. And you have certain analysts who believe this as well. But the second reason is that it comes from Ukraine. And this is that every time Ukraine offers up a concession to Russia in these talks based on Ukrainian neutrality, on 
things like that, you know, things that the Russians have been asking for. Before the war, Ukraine immediately backtracks on those items that they offer up, such as neutrality. One minute, they're offering up the neutrality. The next, there's no compromise to be had with the Russians. One minute, they're offering up autonomy for the Donbass, like was asked in the, well, shoot, like they signed on to in the Minsk agreements. The next, they backtrack, and they pretend they didn't say it. One minute, they're offering up a ceasefire with Russia. The next, they're asking for more NATO weapons. This may be, and I'll just throw this bone to the Ukrainians, this may be in actuality a very effective tactic to delay Russia from resuming their offensive. But, regardless of if it's a tactic or not, it has definitely succeeded in buying Ukraine a number of weeks to get their shit together. So, whether it's deliberate or not deliberate, they have bought themselves a good bit of time. Because they were getting ground down before. But it seems that Russia is losing interest in these peace talks. Uh, as alluded to by them now gearing up for another offensive. So... As effective as a stalling technique as this has been, as effective as it's been in stalling the peace talks altogether, and in buying Ukraine time, the consequences of doing this will mean that a negotiated settlement between Russia and Ukraine is going to be off the table for the remainder of the conflict. So the peace that we will see at the end of this will probably not be negotiated at all. No, there'll be the appearance of a negotiated peace. But in reality, it will instead be imposed by the winner on the loser. And the winner is probably going to be Russia. And as a side note here, I'll just say that if Russia has to march all the way to Lviv, which is that the new de facto capital of the country all the way in the western part of Ukraine. If Russia has to march all the way to Lviv to end the war, then the likelihood of them releasing the Ukrainian territory they take will be almost non-existent. Though, as of right now, Russia's stated war aims do not include any annexations aside from Crimea. They don't want to take much land away from Ukraine But remember, if you remember, Russia also didn't want to invade Ukraine in the first place. We can reasonably say that they didn't. We can reasonably say that because if they wanted to, they would have done so back in 2014 when they seized Crimea and the war between Ukraine and the rebels first broke out. That was an easy target for the Russian military. They could have gone further than Crimea. But they chose not to. So we can safely say that they didn't want war with Ukraine. And good on them for not wanting war with Ukraine. But. Here we are. Uh, They also. We can also safely say from that. That they didn't want to take much land from Ukraine either. But here we are. Where if we fast forward from then to today. 
Russia is now at war with Ukraine. Something they did something they didn't want to do. But now they're at war with Ukraine. So even if even though they didn't want to do this, you they're now they're at war with Ukraine. They didn't want to, but here they are. And if Ukraine does not surrender, then Russia will also have to take more land to end the war. Something else that they don't want to do, that which we can judge based off of previous action. So they didn't want war, but they've gotten war. They say they they've shown by action that they don't want to take more land from Ukraine, but if that's what they end up having to do, they're going to do it. And the farther Russia has to march into Ukraine, the less willing they'll be to give that land back. So that that's the danger Ukraine faces with the resumption of an offensive, which many are starting to fear is going to happen pretty soon. Now, whether it's this week or a couple weeks later, we'll see. All right, well, I'm, I'm not going to pretend that it's going to happen tomorrow or today. But since it's, you know, being talked about a bit more, and since the peace talks appear to be failing, I figured it was appropriate to, you know, bring it up. So, with a potential resumption of the war, I'll do a brief rundown of my previous predictions on how I think the war is going to go, if the war is not going to be settled as is. So, my predictions are that I see the war playing out like this. The troops, the tr well, those have already been happening. So the troops centered around Nijian, uh have already been encircled. Nizian and Chernihiv have already been encircled. So the next thing that I believe is going to happen is that Kiev and Kharkov will be encircled. Then Russia, after moving troops up to take control of the west bank of the Dnieper River, which means that big chunk of country that they haven't touched yet to the east of the Dnieper, they're going to take all of that. And then they'll likely halt their offensive. They'll likely halt their advance to close the pockets that they'll have made around Kiev, Kharkov, Nizhyn, and Chernihiv. Uh, they're going to close the pockets of Mariupol, which they're already in the process of doing. And the Donbass as a whole will be in their control. Closing these pockets will neutralize the vast majority of the Ukrainian army, either by surrender or by wholesale destruction. Once those pockets in the Donbass and around Nizhyn are closed, Russia will likely then resume the offensive, rapidly pushing west towards the de facto capital of Lviv. If they don't do that to encircle you know, Kiev... And then move on to Lviv while they're commencing the siege of Kiev at the same time. Now, it is my belief that they'll probably put Kiev under siege before doing this. But that's a possibility. And if they go to the far west, I advance. Uh, I suspect that this advance will be much faster than even the rapid gains we're likely to see when they resume this offensive. Uh... So far as, uh, uh, my goodness, tripping over my words, it's probably going to be a lot faster when they make that advance onto Lviv, 
their advance is going to be way faster than anything we've seen up to this point. Because at that point, the Ukrainian military will have essentially ceased to exist. They'll have ceased to exist. And then, once they advance on the Lviv, the, this second advance will mark the achievement of one of Russia's stated objectives. Uh, just, just them going onto this offensive towards Lviv will mark one of their objectives, which is the de demilitarization of Ukraine. If the Ukrainian military is non-existent, congratulations, you've demilitarized Ukraine. So from there, the siege and probably inevitable capture of Lviv will mark the end of the war. And if Russia has to go that far to end the war, well, it'll probably mark the annexation of all of Ukraine as well. Uh, again, that assumes Ukraine doesn't capitulate earlier. And it is my view that Ukraine will be broken up into multiple pieces. Those pieces will then be integrated into Russia. You're looking at Luhansk, Donetsk, Novorossiya, so that's everything east of the Dnieper plus Odessa. And then what's left will prob what's left of Ukraine will be legally under Russia, but will be left sort of as an autonomous region. And I like to call it Ruthenia. New Ruthenia. So Luhansk, Donetsk, Novorossiya, and New Ruthenia will be what Ukraine gets broken up into in the end of this. That's my prediction. And we'll see. Should the offensive resume? If some of those comes true, only time will tell, but such is the fog of war. But that, my friends, my lovely listeners, is all I have for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. As the world is changing, we will have fun watching it together, folks. Now, I've been your host, Hyshawn Wade. My throat is tiring out on me, but you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.